We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Woi Wurrung Nation, traditional custodians of the lands of which we record this podcast. We recognise the care and cultivation of country by First Peoples and pay respects to Elders past and present. That respect is extended to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Welcome to the Diggers Podcast, the podcast for subversive gardeners looking to explore the unconventional and potentially controversial concepts that push the boundaries of traditional gardening. Join us as we challenge the status quo and discover new ways to grow and cultivate the world around us. Welcome to the Diggers podcast series, where we discuss the hot horticultural topic, eucalypse, friend and foe. The iconic tree has been a topic of conversation and debate for many years, and over the course of this series, we'll be talking to people from all sides of the argument, plus exploring more widely trees in our urban and wild areas. Hello to you. My name is Chloe Foster, horticulturalist, teacher and broadcaster from Melbourne, Australia, hosting on behalf of the Diggers Club and Foundation. Diggers is a gardening club and community specialising in conservation, preservation of a wide range of heirloom vegetables and rare fruits and plants. Today, I'm chatting with Jeremy Francis, owner and creator of Cloud Hill Gardens. Jeremy and wife Val created the gardens over 30 years ago in the English perennial border style. The garden has become a popular destination in the Dandenong Ranges east of Melbourne and recently incorporated into the Diggers Foundation to preserve it in perpetuity. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. <laughs> what a wrap-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very nice of someone. <laughs> yeah. We've got a bit to cover today, and we're going to be covering some interesting topics. So I really am looking forward to our chat. Um, so let's get stuck into it. Now, do you call yourself a gardener? Yes. I was farming for 25 years in Western Australia, but by the end of that 25 years, that 5,000 acres was looking like a a fairly extensive landscape job. (laughs) And and I've been gardening in the Dandenongs now at Cloud Hill since 1992, so yes. What shifted you from farming to gardening? Oh, one or two boring things like farmer's back. <laughs> oh, okay. Not as bad as or worse than gardener's back, perhaps. Uh, not good. But on the other hand, I'd become interested in plants and also in design. And as a hobby, I'd actually been importing plants and then giving them away to nurseries so right. during the 80s. And at a certain point, this seemed ridiculous. So I thought, right, let's do take this seriously. So we moved to the Dandongs after some investigation. And 30 years later, here we are. Okay. So what gets you excited by gardens and gardening? Just about everything, actually, both the plants and the design side of things, which is unusual. Mm. And fortunately, as we were hunting around back in 1990, we did discover this extraordinary property, which was an old nursery property with fascinating old plants, historic plants, connected with some interesting international horticulturalists, that was the framework to the garden. But in retrospect, it was an extraordinary piece of good fortune. Okay. So tell me about the design and layout of Cloud Hill and the plants that were existing there. 
Well, it was an old nursery property, but also an old flower farm. So there were both plantings. And a flower farm means that the plants were cultivated in rows simply Mm. because Jim Woolwich was growing flowers, foliage for the florist industry. And that was the obvious way to do it. But it actually gave the property some structure straight away. At the same time, there were nursery plantings, and these were plants put in for propagation material, but actually imported by Jim's brother Ted from nurseries uh, in Japan, in England, in America, and one or two extraordinary horticulturalists as well. Ernest Wilson, Chinese Wilson, the famous plant hunter, was Mm. uh, actually supplying plants to Teddy Woolrich back in the 1920s, and we have these to work with, and they're now 100 years old, and they're of serious international significance. So, as I said, it's a credible piece of good fortune to find this property and have it come up for sale. So, how did you work out how to lay it all out and how to design it? Uh, fortunately, we took our time. <laughs> good. Good. You have to. You really have to, to oh, do this absolutely. stuff. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. of course, the place had been neglected for 20 years or so when we first purchased it for various reasons. And so, there was a lot of cleaning up to do. But most of the old important plants were still there and still in good condition. Mm. Um, So we spent a year or two just figuring out uh, one or two aspects of the garden. And then gradually, because financial resources were limited, we oozed our way out from there Mm. and we're still working on it. It breaks up into about 25 separate gardens now. But (laughs) one area we've only opened to the public in the last six months. Have you? Yep. Tell me about that spot. Well, right at the top of the garden. Okay. And um, yes, it's just something we've been working on for fun over the last 15 years or so. It's probably been about a year since I was at Cloud Hill, but is it above those spectacular Japanese maples? Oh, yes. Is that the the spot? Yeah, right at the top of the garden, uh, just tucked in below one of the car parks, actually. What are some of the plants that you've put in there? Well, in that case, we deliberately planted out some ewes in order to topiary them. Mm. And that's been a process which has occupied 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> They're slow growing, uh, but they will be extraordinary over the next three or four years. Have you got a plan for what you're going to prune them into? Oh, yes, yes. And people can actually see that now. Yeah, okay. Uh, just very elaborate topiaries. Beautiful. So some swirls and... Oh, absolutely. Tears. Tears. Oh, lovely. <laughs> tears. Beautiful. Yep. Uh, I mean, it is one of the most technical pruning techniques, topiary. It's absolutely. An absol- it's an art form. It yep. really is an art form. It's very challenging and you do need a lot of time <laughs> and you do need to live a long time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's your favourite tree at Cloud Hill? It's hard to go past the two big Japanese maples in the middle of the garden. They are of serious significance. They came from Japan. They're associated with the Yokohama nursery. They're associated with Chinese Wilson. He helped in sending them from Yokohama to Teddy Woolrich back in 1928. Were they there when you came to Cloud Hill? Yes, they were on the outskirts of the property. The first thing we did was to dig them and move them to the centre of the garden and make the garden around them. Fascinating. So not only a plant history that they come with, but also a connection to human history as well. Well, horticulture Ernest in Wilson, Chinese Wilson, he's of the 100, 200 important plant hunters. Mm. He's within the top three. Mm. So an extraordinary thing that uh, he should be helping the Woolwiches establish their nursery just after the First World War. Wow. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the area surrounding Cloud Hill. 
<laughs> the dandelions are really interesting. I actually came to Victoria, took a break from farming for a few months in the late 1970s, and I spent my weekends driving around the dandelions. And the, the history of the dandelions is really, really interesting. Uh, part of it is that the entire area was pretty well clear felled back in the late 19th century, and certainly the village settlement blocks. And I might add that Cloud Hill is a village settlement block. It was a requirement that those blocks be cleared when they were distributed to people back in the 1890s. And so you see old photographs of the hills without trees. Mm. And it's hard to believe that the Dandongs went for 40, 50 years with very few trees on them. But uh, Streeton and Roberts were actually residents. And, and Who were Streeton and Roberts, for well, people that the, don't know? Yes, the Impressionist painters. Arthur Streeton actually painted a painting showing the Dandongs and the Yarrow Valley as a desert. And it's so startling that people thought the painting was of the Flinders Ranges for <laughs> 50, 60 years. And then someone <laughs> spotted the profile of the Warburton Ranges and uh, Little Joe, the little hill just near Warburton, uh, sitting right in the middle of it. Okay. But the whole thing is painted as desert because Streeton was so furious that there were no trees on the Dandenongs. <laughs> right. That was the case. Just and around about the, when did he paint that? Yeah, just in the 1920s. Yep. Yep. But there were a few. They were in the wet gullies. And over the years, they gradually receded back right across the landscape. And that's the interesting thing now. Uh, we, we have to really think hard about how we live with these trees. Mm. To give listeners a bit of context what we're talking about, because it might seem that there's a bit of a disconnect between Cloud Hill, which is a predominantly exotic or almost all exotic plants and species and your passion for how land is managed and fire management. So you spent, now I could be wrong here, your early years in WA, were you born over yes. there, grew up on the farm? Yep, born on, on farm. the farm, raised on the farm. Where was the farm? The farm was near New Norcia, uh, so it was north of Perth. Uh, Unorcia is an interesting area. It's a Spanish Benedictine community. Um, Spanish monks arrived intending to convert the local people to Christianity. <laughs> so they arrived with Bibles, not guns. That's the interesting thing. Sign- I think that is yes. significant. Yes. And so the Uit people in the surrounding townships now, wherever you go, uh, you see Aboriginal faces everywhere. So I lived in a landscape where uh, the Aboriginal community was very, very strong. And a little bit more incorporated into, with everyone yes, else? Yes, yes. And then there's the history of Western Australia. Western Australia was settled very, very slowly in the 19th century due to its poor soils. Uh, Victoria was settled in a land grab, in a three-year land grab from 1835 to 1838. Uh, Western Australia was settled incredibly slowly, which meant there was a big overlap with the Noongar people carrying on with their traditions Mm. for 60, 80 years during the 19th century. Mm. In fact, when we first moved to the farm at Magumba, I I remember as a child looking out from our house, we had a long view west and we'd actually see fires on the horizon. Mm. I now know they were Aboriginal traditional burning fires Mm. going on in the 1950s, early 1960s. Okay. You just cannot imagine the like of it anywhere in the eastern states of Australia. that's really late as far as in comparison to the eastern states. So because it was less violent than than the eastern states or the Victorian settlement, what do you think the settlers learnt from the local people over in WA? The early settlers actually relied on the Noongar people even for their food on occasions. The 
the soils were so poor, the farming was so difficult, the Noongar people were supplying the settlers with food mm. during the 19th century. So it was, it was a very close relationship. There were killings, there were massacres in the same way as they were everywhere, but yeah. not on the same level. Yeah. And certainly north of Perth, around New Norcia, there simply weren't. The uh, Spanish monks were recruiting the uh, Ewart people as stockmen and, uh, as, and as farm labourers. Okay, so how does how does this compare to what happened in the eastern states? Well, it's terribly sad in Victoria because there was a brilliant history of We've got a uh, pile Victoria. of books in front of us today, anyone listening? <laughs> yeah, James Boyce. I'd, I'd recommend it, uh, everyone yeah. read James Boyce, 1835, The Founding of Melbourne and the Conquest of Australia because it's laid out in black and white just what happened in Victoria. And it was very bloody. It was savage. The settlement was very, very rapid. Uh, there were a lot of people moving across from Tasmania. Uh, they had been involved with the Black Wars only a few years earlier. And, uh, and then there was a stream of people moving down from the 19 counties of New South Wales, all within that same period. And so Aboriginal landscape management in Victoria collapsed almost instantly. Mm. Consequently, from 1835 to the first big fire, 1851, it wasn't very long, but that's how quickly the landscape collapsed. Mm. Those wars and that settlement period had a huge impact on how the land was managed. Absolutely. Or did, it almost, uh, did land management uh, 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 almost stop? It stopped and restarted in a chaotic kind of a way. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in Western Australia, you look at the history of, of fires in Western Australia, there were no big fires right throughout the 19th century. Mm. There were a number of fires in the 1920s. The first really bad year for fires in Western Australia was 1961, and that was an extraordinary year. Uh, there what was, happened then? Uh, there, we had a very weird series of um, climatic events, mainly cyclones in the northwest. When a cyclone forms in the northwest, it quite often combines with a high-pressure system in the Great Australian Bight, and that funnels desert winds straight across the west coast or straight across the southwest. And these are these winds are gale force, storm force. They are bone dry. They are super hot. Mm. They are black Saturday conditions, but not for an hour or two, but for weeks on end, just horrendous conditions beyond anything that anywhere else in Australia has ever experienced. So that was 1961. The consequence was that fires broke out and they couldn't control them and much of the Jarrah Forest was burnt that year. As a consequence of that, there was a program to reintroduce traditional custodian burning through the forest but do it in a scientific way, and that's that's the fuel reduction systems that uh, of uh, David Packham and MacArthur. They date to 1962. So they've been doing cool burning and tr- incorporating traditional land yep. management yep. since the 1960s in the since West. Following 1961, from 1962 through, well, from there on, really, yes. That's absolutely incredible because we cannot be doing any worse with our bushfire management no. <laughs> over in the east. <laughs> no, and we, that, look, we saw it in the Black Summer fires a couple of years ago. Yes, that's what startled me. Coming from Western Australia to Victoria, I was so... I've, I've lived in two of the worst bushfire areas in Australia, but the nature of the risk is entirely different. Uh, in Western Australia, it's weather. The rainfall's quite high in the winter. It tails off in the spring. Uh, there's a lot of growth and suddenly it all dries out in a 
three-week period in November. By the end of November, we're going into these very intense, strong easterly winds with high temperatures. At the same time, the landscape's covered in fuel. Mm. Consequently, in the 20, 30 years I was farming, the average person spent quite a few weeks every year doing nothing but reducing fuel around their buildings, around their houses, putting in fire breaks, just doing everything they could think of to reduce risk. Mm. Because the risk was so obvious, so in everyone's face. Victoria moved across Victoria and there was hardly any attempt to remove fuel as far as I could make out. Instead, all the money had gone into emergency management. So in the Dandongs, There are more CFA stations in the Dandongs than in pretty well than the entire southwest of Western Australia. It's an area a hundred times the size with fewer emergency management resources. Really? The sad thing is, as we discovered on Black Saturday, is you can build up as many emergency management resources as you like on a bad day. Mm. They can't do anything. Yep. Yep. Because you're not dealing with it before it happens. You're dealing no. with it while it's happening and afterwards. Yep. And, yeah, and, and, it's so and, knee-jerk. You just cannot get your head around the energy involved in those big fires. On Black Saturday, <laughs> to illustrate a friend of mine um, who, who was keeping his ear to the ground, was rang me a few months after Black Saturday and said that someone had actually worked out that the fires of Black Saturday, just the one day, had released the equivalent of 15 Hiroshima bombs of energy. Oh, 15. Bit, and I spent oh. two days thinking, oh, wow, that's amazing. I watched those fires from the other side of the valley that day and trying to imagine 15 bombs worth of energy. <laughs> and two days later, he ran back and said, no, no, that was a mistake. It wasn't 15. It was 1,500, 1,500 Hiroshima bombs. Worth of energy. Uh, worth of energy. And this is someone with a science background. Yeah. You just cannot get your head around the energy release involved. And of course, emergency management doesn't work. It just does not. No. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so where you are at Cloud Hill, it's what's called the peri-urban fringe. Absolutely. What is the peri-urban fringe? This is the um, interface, if you like, between suburbia mm. and the bush. Mm-hmm. And so the Dandongs have national parks and they also have residential streets. Some of the residential streets look exactly like residential streets anywhere in Melbourne. They're fifth acre blocks, one quarter acre blocks. Mm. Some of them are bigger blocks. The interesting thing is the residential areas are all along the tops of the ridges and the national parks are all on the slopes. And if you look at the steepness yeah. of slopes, they're actually pretty steep. Yes. So what happens, mm. what the danger is... I think is, I know what's yes. coming. <laughs> Fire yeah. moves so insanely quickly yep. uphill. Yep. Yep. And on Black Saturday, the one great success the CFA had was to control the Ferntree Gully fire that was burning beside the railway and they just got a helicopter to it before it broke into the timber. If it had broken into the timber, the general consensus is you could have added a zero to the number of deaths that day. Yeah. So we're talking Upper Ferntree Gully, there's an area of timber and then residential streets at the top of that timber. Uh, the estimate was that those houses would have been burning within six minutes mm. of that fire breaking into the trees. Yeah. Yep. I might say they controlled it with about two minutes to spare after fighting it for three or four hours. It was right down to a coin toss. Oh, gosh. That's just very scary to think about. And I might say I came across all this within three days of Black Saturday. (laughs) 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 So I'd spent the whole of that five-week period in a bit of a panic. Mm. 
what are some of the challenges that you have being in this peri-urban area? So when we're talking about the forest surrounding you, habitat, but safety, safety for you, your visitors, the garden, what are the challenges you guys have? Well, the funny thing is 99.9% of the time there's no risk at all and yeah. that's the great difficulty in a way. And the great because risk. Because we can go, unlike Western Australia where there was risk for 10, 12 weeks of every summer, for four or five days of every summer, for about 20 hours of every day of risk. So we're talking a colossal window of risk. The window of risk in the Dandongs is tiny. You can literally go for years without having a bad day. In fact, mm. we've done that now for several years. Mm. But suddenly a year like 2009, all bets are off and the consequences of the disaster, well, it, it would make headlines around the world. Yeah. Yep. So Cloud Hill is completely filled with exotic vegetation. There's, and it always has been, and yes. It, yes, and it always yeah. has been. So in an article that you wrote, and I'm going to quote you, yep. <laughs> you said that native gardens are tricky and nature always does a better job. Let's stretch um, that out a little bit. Yeah, and what do I mean by that? Well, yes. I was actually asked, what did I think of native gardens? And I'm as excited by native gardens as anyone. <laughs> <laughs> because when you think about it, you know, see you in Magumba, you only have to drive a few minutes into this biodiversity hotspot, mm. which we did every spring. We'd drive out and see these incredible wildflowers. That would be spectacular. And they were unearthly and bewildering yeah. because mm. we only had names for a tiny, tiny fraction of the plants we were seeing. Yeah. You, you had to study the field but half a lifetime to come to grips with it. Mm. On the other hand, when it comes to making a garden with those plants, I have seen these landscapes. I've, I've seen extraordinary landscapes within a few minutes' drive of where we were farming, mm. and I've never seen a native garden which comes close to the real thing. Yeah. That's the difficulty. So you just think, well, what's the point of trying to replicate it? Because yeah. you can't. Yeah, in a way you can't. It's fun to try. And I, I, and, yes, and, and, and let's not discourage people yes. from trying. And, and, and when it comes to native <laughs> plants, and we have this wonderful native plant nursery just down the road from us, well, what I'd suggest is buy a property in the, in the suburbs and go for it because it's quite safe there. Going back to peri areas. As far as slumability yeah. is concerned, yes. Yep. Yep. Going back to peri areas, that's where the problem is. This is the strange irony of it. We have our native parks and then we have houses and somehow we've got to tease those two ecosystems apart and we, we have to somehow convince people that safer gardens means more sustainable bushlands. Yeah. Those things, there's direct correlation here and it's absolutely counterintuitive. If we allow those two ecosystems to mesh, we ask people to live under ridiculous levels of risk mm. on one level. And at the same time, we cannot manage the bushlands either. We cannot fuel reduce them and the fires that go through are just devastating. And that's the other part of the equation. I do not think that people have come to grips with how damaging hot fires are. Mm. And are they new to Australia? Well, I think they are. I don't think there were hot fires 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 20,000 years. I do not think there were hot fires. There were various reasons for it. Hot fires are a product of Whitefellow Australia. And you see that in areas that have been constantly backburned today with the vegetation that grows back. It's vegetation that can tolerate those hot temperatures. Whereas in, and I'm going to make an assumption, the areas in WA that were managed by traditional custodians for a lot longer and in areas over in the east, there are little pockets that have started to be managed with traditional methods. There's a different suite of plants. 
this becomes quite complicated. Yeah. And, and sadly, the arguments between the authorities is just terrible at the moment. And the arguments for what was going on, the history of Aboriginal landscape management, say in Western Australia, there's an avalanche of evidence in favour of what was going on. People saw it. Mm. Guilfoyle saw it. Ferdinand Van Buller did a trip to Western Australia and he talks about Aboriginal landscape management. And yet at the same time, there are people in university in Western Australia saying it's all mythology, it's all nonsense. And I was just looking at a booklet on the Flowers of Perth Hills published uh, just a few months ago. And in this, it stated quite boldly that cool burning is a myth that the only fires were fires every 50 to 150 years, and they were firestorms, and that the um, Australian ecologies expect firestorms and not cool fires. Where did they get that information from? At a certain point, I do not understand quite how people can claim this, but it's coming from academics at the highest levels, Mm. and it's a tragedy, and it's just causing so much angst between the various disciplines at the moment. Mm. The historians of the landscape have a completely different view, of course. Bill Gamage in uh, The World's Biggest Estate includes over a thousand observations of Aboriginal landscape management. The Aboriginal people themselves talk of it. And those observations that Bill has has found have come from diaries of the early settlers? Absolutely, from the early settlers, from the early explorers, from people like Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin was actually botanising one day and an Aboriginal fire went through. He didn't stop his botanising because Mm. it was such a cool fire. Well, you could carry on. He didn't try and flee it. Uh, They just muffled themselves up and carried on with their botanising while the fire actually gently used its way through. And that's the thing. They were very cool, Mm. very slow-moving fires. It wasn't necessary to flee them. Mm. These were seen in Western Australia. They were seen all around Perth. Well, seen in Western Australia, as you said before, almost within living memory. Absolutely. Um, And certainly the fires in the Great Sandy Desert show up on satellite photography runs from the 1970s. Really? Absolutely, yeah. And so the traditions are very deep and they're quite recent. So what was previously managed in the Dandenong Ranges, can it be brought back to how the Dandenongs are managed today? Or can we improve the management? Where do we go from here? Yeah. It's one of the huge puzzles. And all I can think is, first of all, we have to recognise the history of what was happening. Look, going back further, my thesis goes that Previous to 65,000 years ago, megafauna had a huge impact on the landscape. This is what happens in Africa today. And megafauna still control the intensity of fires in the savannah parts of Africa. By the way, if you want to see where most fires in the world are, it's Africa. Is it? Yeah. 70% of all the fires in any one year that show up on satellite photography are in Africa. How are they started? Well, some of them are lightning strikes. Most of them are started by people living in traditional agricultural cultures who have been doing it for the last Mm. 10,000, 100,000. The fires in Africa lit by people, the traditions go back maybe a million years. Mm. So when people arrived in Australia, they actually brought that culture with them. 
So the megafauna went extinct and we can argue about why they went extinct. That's a whole other podcast series. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, I won't get involved with that. <laughs> yeah. but, but it just so happens that wherever people arrived uh, in various parts of the world, the megafauna went extinct. It happened in North America, South America, New Zealand 600 years ago, Australia between about 60 and 35,000 years ago. Yeah. That effect of the megafauna, which is just colossal, and to, to see it today, think about the fire behaviour in pastoral areas uh, running cattle uh, versus national parks right next to the cattle, chalk and cheese. Mm. That's the effect of megafauna. So the megafauna went extinct. Their pivotal effect on the environment was replaced by the fire stick, and that happened all around the world. The difference with Australia is that culture had... 50,000 years to evolve mm. and it became more sophisticated and more intricate than any other fire culture anywhere on earth by light years. It was it's just extraordinary what was going on. Mm. Captain Cook talks about it when he holed his, the endeavour on the Great Barrier Reef mm. and managed to get the ship up onto the beach. And the local people came down and during those several weeks they were repairing the endeavour and one of the things they did was to burn the coastal dunes. And Captain Cook actually talks about this in his diary. The, the sailors were astonished by what they saw. It was like a magician's trick. <laughs> there were two French vessels exploring the south coast of Western Australia in the 1790s, the L'Esperance and the Recherche. And if you look at the south coast today, there's Esperance and the Recherche Archipelago, the island group off that beach. And those are both named for those two ships. While those ships were mapping the coastline, uh, they accidentally left a botanist on shore for several days. And while he was on shore, the Noongar people of that part of Western Australia just happened to be burning. And so there's a vivid eyewitness account of that going on dating from 1792, which is about 36 years before white settlement. Just extraordinary. Very mm. powerful. Mm. There has been so much knowledge lost, particularly in the eastern states. How can we marry what's known by science and botany and the needs and cultural requirements of plants in the wild with traditional fire stick management? Can we get back to some sort of equilibrium? Well, I think it's possible. There was a paper that was presented to the Bushfire World Commission. Sadly, it was not tabled, so it was never discussed, but it was the Chen McInerney paper. And that's a study of all the buildings to have been destroyed by bushfire in the southern half of Australia from 1939 through to 2009 measuring them to see how far they were from bushland at the time. And, of course, these statistics they compiled were pretty amazing. Not surprising, though. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the message is that the closer a building is to flammable bush, the more likely it is to burn. Mm. But the interesting thing is you don't have to be that far away from flammable bush for it to be moderately safe. And the distance they came up with is around about 100 metres. Yeah. So we can think about everything within 100 metres of buildings and how flammable that vegetation is. Do you think it's possible to introduce fire stick farming, traditional methods, cool burning to how peri-urban fringe is managed? And then maybe our more European, just burn the whole lot, you know, could be, <laughs> could be utilised further out in wild areas to reduce fuel loads. Well, my suspicion is fuel loads need to be reduced right across the landscape. But I suppose the crucial thing is to set up 
buffers, if you like, between mm. residential areas and bushland areas. And going back to something I said a little while back, by making residential areas safe, that gives us a tool to manage bushland areas. While the two are interpenetrated, while you have trees growing right through the residential areas, you're in the worst of every possible world. Mm. Your hands are tied, you can't do a thing. Mm. Part of the solution, of course, is to recognise that there is safe and unsafe vegetation when it comes to flammability. And I did a submission to the Royal Commission myself on exactly this. Yeah, let's talk about that. We're going to get to it. So tell me about the submission. Um... Curious enough, there was an editorial of a certain paper which was saying we should ignore the vegetation around buildings. That should not be a discussion as to how we approach reducing risk from Black Saturday. And I was so taken aback by this, I actually wrote a letter to that paper and they very nicely published it. (laughs) (laughs) And that earned me my invite to the Royal Commission. And having an invitation to the Royal Commission, I thought, oh, wow, what am I? I'm someone with 25 years experience farming and someone who's been working on a project and the dad dogs, but I'm not someone with letters after my name at all. But on the other hand... But that experience is massive. Yes, and also I did find two or three people who had very kindly spent a lot of time going through the science, and so we did come up with some pretty solid science. There are a number of factors which decide whether or not vegetation is flammable or not, but at a certain point it comes back to ecologies, and certain ecologies uh, there's strong evolutionary pressure to push plants to becoming more flammable, and that's been true in much of Australia for a long, long time, Mm. whereas in other parts of the world, plants go to a lot of trouble not to burn. Mm. And so that gives us the chance to plant safer gardens. What could people do to plant safer gardens, gardens that are less flammable? Plants need as much moisture as possible in the foliage. They need as little volatile oil as possible. Architecture is part of it as well. Salts, something which is a little bit hard to figure out just looking at a plant, but some plants have high levels of salts in their foliage and salts happen to be a natural fire retardant. And uh, salt bush, it's impossible to burn salt bush. Mm. And sometimes it's a little bit counterintuitive. Cedars, curiously enough, most conifers will burn quite easily, not cedars. Really? Yep. Cedars won't burn. I discovered that when a cedar nearly fell on me (laughs) a few (laughs) years ago. We had to get rid of it and it was just about impossible to get rid of. Mm. I had to stand there with a leaf blower (laughs) and feed material onto a bonfire with a leaf blower, which I nearly destroyed over several days because (laughs) I was standing there for hours at a time trying to keep this fire going, burning a cedar. It's really surprising what will burn and what won't burn. So part of the story has to be that there needs to be some pretty serious science into which plants are safe. Oaks are pretty good. Yeah. A friend of mine was telling me that farmers around Benalla were planting poplars. This was 100 years ago, but partly as fire breaks Mm. because poplars will not burn. Mm. My only concern with, well, particularly poplars, is the weed potential. Yep. And, and, that, and, and willows then, as well, I think, is another one that's yep. less flammable. Yep. And, and, then, and then we have to think about other factors. And, yeah. of course, we don't want to be planting weeds. No. Mm. It's, a really, it's really tricky. Yeah, but when we say poplars, there are hundreds of poplars. Yeah. It's a case of figuring out which ones are safe and which ones are not safe yeah. in terms of weed potential. And at the same time, we need to know that they do the job in terms of reducing fire risk. Mm. There are quite a range of plants that will make gardens safer, but this is something which is going to need some research to be absolutely confident about. Yeah. There has been a bit of research done, and we were talking about a book earlier that came out about a year ago 
It's called Safer Gardens by Leslie Corbett. Yes. Uh, she's a Western Australian and uh, there have been a number of people in Western Australia working with safer plants in that mm. landscape because it is such a dangerous landscape. I mean, the Jarrah forest themselves, the Jarrah is a, a plant rich in volatile oil uh, which just wants to explode. Mm. Actually, an explosion. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Leslie did a tremendous amount in trying to collate the research yeah. and really all that she demonstrated is there needs to be more research. No <laughs> one's agreeing on research parameters in the first place yeah. and so there's a lot of confusion. There yeah. needs to be more research. Yeah. In an article that you wrote in the Diggers magazine after the June storms that we had, so there's obviously bushfires are a big risk in the Dandenongs, but this, I don't know, once in a century storm that came through, <laughs> that's the other risk that you face up there. I remember the very first day I drove in the Dandenongs. I could take you on the route that we mm. drove on because the memory of it is so strong. It was 49 years ago and I can take you back and I can tell you, as we drove through and looped around the tourist road, the first sight of mountain ash was extraordinary. It reminded me quite vividly of Carrie in Western Australia, uh, but uh, but on a bigger scale. Yeah. The mountain ash is a very special tree, but blimey, it has quite a few different ways it will kill you. <laughs> I know. It's, a, it's a bit like the great white shark. I mean, <laughs> they, they are magnificent. But yeah. Crikey, don't swim out and pat them. No, no. They're a plant to be admired from a distance, yes. but we're living amongst yep, them. Yep, yep. In the article that you, you wrote in the 60s and 70s and perhaps a little bit earlier and talked about the names of some of these streets throughout the Dandenongs, Bella Vista, Bonnie but, View. Yes. There's street after street after street named after views yeah. because for 50 years, every single house in the Dandenongs had a view. Yeah. That's what is so hard for people to imagine now. So drive through the hills and they just see constant forest that only two generations ago, people drove to street after street after street for these absolutely astonishing views. And all that demonstrates is how dynamic the forest is mm. and how dynamic the landscape is. It's changed so, so quickly. I remember trying to count the number of houses along Bella Vista Crescent. Was it six or eight or 10 or 15? It was just impossible to tell because mm. the vegetation was so, so, so dense. Mm. And yet Bella Vista Crescent, every single one of those houses was built because at that stage yep. it enjoyed a magnificent view. Yeah. And those houses are not terribly old. No. So. Yep. Around about that time, 50-odd years ago, had the land been cleared for orchards and that sort of land use, nurseries, floriculture? Yeah. Well, going back over the history of the hills, there weren't too many trees by the end of the First World War, by the beginning of the First World War. Are they being cut down for housing yes. and Cut down other... for timber. The, the timber was sold. But it, it was actually compulsory for people to clear the blocks. In the case of Cloud Hill, for instance, Old George Woolrich was allocated the block yep. in 1895. He wasn't given title until he could show he had an income. And to get an income, he had to clear the entire block and he planted it to cherries and raspberries. Mm. Only then to get his title. The title is 1908, so 12 years, absolutely solid work mm. to get his title. And so that's why everything was cleared. And what about the Dandenongs before White Fellas got there? Well, so what's yeah. the and, and traditional what, and, and land trying use? to think what Are it there any like. records? There are two or three observations in the world's biggest estates of people talking about not only grasslands running west of Melbourne, running east as well. Really? 
and grass running up to the tops of the highest ridges. But I think what they were seeing was the grass running up over the clay soils, which extend for most of the way up the tops of the ridges. But once you reach a certain point, it turns into volcanic soil and there the mountain ash would take over. So I think the mountain ash occupied that footprint all the way through. And if you look at some of the gullies on the western slopes, you can see where the the, the volcanic soil's been washed down the gullies, and there you also have mountain ash and, yeah. and, and grey gums, the, the big forest trees all the way down. But in the intervening areas, it's dry sclerophyll forest or woodlands now. Mm. I think in the old days would have been the occasional stringy bark, whatever, yeah. with grass. And, that, and I think that because, partly because of these observations, but partly because there's still kangaroo grass growing in places. And you think, mm. well, kangaroo grass, what's that doing anywhere near the Dandongs? Yeah, it, that, that grows in the Western Plains, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, what's it doing in the Dandongs? It mm. needs at 50% sunlight before it's happy. And what's it doing growing in a forest? So I, I think the forest on the west side of the mountain is quite recent. Yep. The forest in the volcanic soils, that would have been old growth. And I imagine there would have been many fewer trees and much, much bigger. Yeah. And the fern tree and the kangaroo grass would have been burnt in the way that all the grasslands were burnt most probably every 12 months, maybe every two years. Mm. Some places are burnt more than twice in a year. But... Very cool fires because that grass holds quite a bit of moisture in the summer Mm. and burns with a cool flame. So those very cool fires would have trickled up into the edge of the mountain ash and just cleared out the debris around the edge of the the forest and created a fuel break. Once you got into the forest, then it would have been full-on old growth forest and Mm. the the fern tree gullies would never have burnt. Or rather, yeah. they would have burnt once every three to five hundred years. Yes, I'm guessing here. I'm yeah, guessing. no, I'm I think trying there's to, nature's given to... you indicators though, yeah, and you've yeah. picked them up. So yeah. soil type is huge, and geology that's very stable, and it's a really big indicator of history and when what's been going on for a really long time. Yep. Soils don't lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And we know the sorts of plants that grow in certain soils too. Absolutely, absolutely. I think every square metre of volcanic soil was occupied by mountain ash. And the depth of it too. It's probably two metres, maybe more in some areas. I mean, it's perfect for a gigantic tree to set their roots. Yes. You know. And those roots just go down and down. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's finish off on chatting about how people can make their gardens a bit more fire resistant wherever they are and what you've done at Cloud Hill to make it a bit more fire resistant. Well, I think we have to work as a community and we have to approach this as a community. We have to think, right, we have a residential area here, we have a bushland area here. Where the houses are too far into the bushland, I think we actually have to remove houses. The theory is we put aside one third of the landscape for biodiversity, for national parks, for wilderness areas. I think that's got to be higher Mm. because I think the entire landscape's got to be returned to a mosaic landscape. And to do that, we've got to put aside more of it. So the farming areas have to contract. Residential areas, we've got to decide exactly what is residential. Be absolutely fierce with anyone who wants to go beyond that. The only way we can preserve biodiversity over the next 10,000, 100,000 years is by separating the residential areas from the national parks and wellness areas. Mm, we, bit of work but but it has to be a community effort. Yeah, people need to be willing to change their ways as yes, well. And, yeah. it, and we need to admit that we probably haven't been doing it very well at all. <laughs> But there's so many different ways that we can do it. You have to go back to thinking how the Aboriginal people thought about the landscape. Mm. 
and we really have to take on board their approach and that intense feeling for country. Mm. And I suppose that's the way forward that I see. There was a quote I read, and I can't think who said it, but talking about clean country and dirty country in the Northern Territory. If the country is clean, then the dreaming is quiet. And that, that kind of sums it up to my mind, that in Australia, we have a landscape which wants to burn, and the vital missing factor of megafauna, we have to replace that with other means. And that involves thinking about everything to do with farming, everything to do with how we live, everything to do with forestry in terms of creating a mosaic or recreating a mosaic landscape, which will preserve biodiversity. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time and knowledge today. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Chloe. Cheers. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast is brought to you by the Diggers Foundation. In order to bring these discussions into the open, we require ongoing funding and ask that you visit the Diggers website for more information on our purpose and how to make a donation towards preserving garden traditions, educating Australian gardeners and making a better world through gardening. Visit www.diggers.com.au. 